What do you think of the, the inclination to, to ban books? Um, of late, books have been banned from schools or, or libraries due to the inclusion of content related to racial issues, sexual immorality, violence, witchcraft, and more. Uh, today, we, we come upon a text which may incline many to ban the Bible, or, or at least maybe to, to ban this part of the Bible. In, in 1 Kings chapter 11, we're told that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. There are a thousand and one reasons why a passage like this makes us uncomfortable. It would be easier to ban 1 Kings 11 or just pass over it in preaching. But this is just as much God's word to us as the passages that we think are easier to swallow. Not only are we not to ban passages like these, but we are to give ourselves to understanding them and hearing the Lord's message to us through them. The Bible, uh, the passages that disclose and describe uh, racial discrimination, sexual immorality, drunkenness, violence, witchcraft, and more, are, are never given for the purposes of permitting or prescribing that sinful behavior. They are given to describe the sin-filled hearts of men and women in this fallen world. They're given to reveal our need for a sinless Savior. As we approach the sexual immorality and the idolatry described in 1 Kings 11, you should have a gut reaction of gross. That is a good and right and natural reaction. But don't stop there. We should find ourselves and our sins in the text. We should see in the full flower of Solomon's sin, our own sins and temptations in seed form. We should see how this text addresses our sin, but we can't stop there either. No, we need to to keep going to find God's mercy and grace. We need to keep going to find God's promises to rescue us through our sinless Savior and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we're going to seek to do in our study of 1 Kings chapter 11 this morning. If you haven't done so, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I believe you can find the passage on page 291. 291. First and second Kings, you must understand, were originally one book. And together, their message is that despite Israel's sin and the sin of her kings, God's true king will come. Though the book describes a descent from the golden era of Solomon's reign, which we've been considering these past several weeks, though it describes a descent from the golden era of Solomon's reign into the grueling era of the exile, and though the prophets of God, Elijah and Elisha, expose Israel's disobedience to God's law, the book still concludes with a king and son of David being released from prison. And this gives us hope that God will yet fulfill his promise to send a son to sit on the throne of his father David forever. So far in the book, Solomon has ascended to the throne of his father David. He's ruled in wisdom and he's built God's glorious temple. Sadly, though, the the fault lines in Solomon's heart have been exposed. Last week, 
as we studied 1 Kings chapters 9 and 10, we saw that Solomon had begun to accumulate weapons and wealth. And now as we turn to study 1 Kings chapter 11, Solomon adds another W to that list. Wives. A number of scholars have pointed out how Solomon, his accumulation of weapons, wealth, and women, was in violation of God's law for the kings of Israel laid down in Deuteronomy 17. We read some of that last week. Solomon was supposed to write down his own copy of God's law, which said he was not to do the very thing that he was actually doing. In other words, Solomon was sinning with a high hand. He was sinning with full knowledge of what God had revealed. And this, as we will come to see, it arouses God's anger. 1 Kings 11 announces that Solomon's heart was not wholly devoted to God. That's what we find in verses 1 to 8. And as sin always does, this arouses God's anger and His great displeasure. We see that in verses 9 to 13. Such displeasure leads Yahweh, leads God, to discipline Solomon through adversaries. See that in verses 14 to 28. And the chapter concludes by announcing that the kingdom will be divided. Verses 29 to 43. So we'll study this chapter under four headings. Devotion, displeasure, discipline, and division. And those four headings will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. In which we will learn that God's people need a king who is wholly devoted to God. A king who will bring God perfect pleasure. A king who will spare God's people from being destroyed by God's wrath against their sin. And a king who will reunite God's people to himself and to one another. Well, let's turn then and consider our first point, devotion. Read 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1-8. to And as we read, be sure to notice all of the language associated with Solomon's heart. 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning there in verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, and 300 concubines. His wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Well, friends, as we read those verses, did you, did you notice all of the heart language associated with them? There's this language of loving and clinging and a heart that is turning and a heart that's not wholly true. You see it there in verse 1, right? Verse 1, King Solomon loved many foreign women. And again, there in verse, at the end of verse 2, Solomon clung to these women in love. And there it is at the end of verse 3, his wives turned away 
his heart. And then there are these two rapid statements there in verse 4. You see them. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. And then there's that final reference you see there in verse 6 where we're told that Solomon did not wholly follow the Lord. Well, what does all of this language lead us to conclude? Solomon was not truly or wholly or completely devoted to God. As we thought about last week, it's somewhat puzzling that David is, is the standard of integrity, isn't it? He's the standard of integrity for Solomon and his sons and the future kings, as we're going to see in the book of Kings. When we think of David, we know that his life was riddled with sin. He committed adultery and murder and false testimony. We remember this and wonder, how could David be the standard of integrity for Solomon and his sons and future kings? Well, the answer seems to lie in the fact that, yes, while David was an egregious and guilty sinner, he did repent. But even more than that, even more to the point, David never turned away to serve false gods. That will be the, the one thing that kind of differentiates good kings and bad kings in the book of Kings. Here it differentiates Solomon from David. What God wants from his king is complete, whole, total devotion. What God wants from each one of us is complete and total devotion. He wants, he requires an undivided heart. But Solomon's heart was divided, wasn't it? It was divided by his love for his many wives and their many idols that represented their many gods. Many opponents of Christianity will often suggest that the Bible is supportive of polygamy. This is not true. And the picture of first, in 1 Kings 11 proves it. The Bible chronicles the sad practice of polygamy, but it does not commend it. Indeed, what we have here is an implicit condemnation of polygamy. Solomon married these many women for political power and personal pleasure. This was a common practice among ancient Near Eastern kings. They would marry royalty from other kingdoms, either to annex land or establish a treaty of peace between the powers. Polygamy uh, with the ancient Near Eastern kings was intertwined with politics and power. But God's kings, which is to say Israel's kings, were to be different and distinct from the kings of the other nations. They weren't to rely on human means of accumulating power or protection from other nations. They were to rely on Yahweh, on God. Notice what his sin of polygamy is doing to him. Notice what Solomon's sin of polygamy is doing to him. It's turning his heart away from devotion to the Lord of love. He exchanged one love for another. Everywhere you find the practice of polygamy in the Scripture, it's either explicitly or implicitly condemned. This is not a picture, a positive picture of Solomon. It's a picture of corruption. It's a picture of the use and abuse of women. It's a picture with which, as we'll see in a moment, the Lord is thoroughly displeased. The Lord is so displeased with Solomon that He is going to discipline Solomon and divide His kingdom. There's nothing positive about this picture of polygamy. Notice the, the characterization of the author there when he writes in verse 1. Just read verse 1 again. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. And then he goes on to list, right, the, the foreign nations you see there. But, but do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it, it's bad enough that Solomon loved the daughter of Pharaoh, our arch enemy, Egypt. It's bad enough. And then he goes on, and, and then we have all this too. 
he's, He's outraged. He's scandalized by this betrayal. Solomon's betrayal of the one true God. And then when we're told there at the end of verse 2 that Solomon clung to these in love, the, the author's using covenant language. It's the, the word clung is what the people of Israel were to do with God in their covenant union with Him. They were to never leave Him or forsake Him. But in clinging to these foreign wives and their idols, Solomon had left and forsaken God's covenant. Solomon had violated the law in Deuteronomy 7 when he married these women. Solomon, he made Yahweh common. Do you understand that that's what's occurring here? Just as Solomon built a temple for Yahweh, so he built a temple for these false gods. In the very first of the Ten Commandments, we're told, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, you shall not have any other gods in my presence. And where does Solomon build these temples? You see it there in verse 7? On the mountain east of Jerusalem. Solomon built these temples in the sight and presence of God's temple. He set these gods before the one true God, Yahweh. Solomon made Yahweh common. He treated him as if he's a god just like any other god. He treated him as though, you know, he can go and worship here and worship there. It doesn't really matter. And this was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And so was his worship. For in worshiping other gods, Solomon was not only breaking the first commandment, but subsequent commandments. He broke the first and the second commandments in the worship of false gods and using their idols. The worship of these gods listed in these verses includes the practice of sexual morality and the murder of babies through sacrifice. In the worship of these false gods, Solomon broke the sixth and the seventh commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery. Friends, I would suggest to you today that these sins are still practiced. Our world's love of sexual pleasure is inextricably bound to the sacrifice of children. Though this practice occurs behind closed doors, in the temples of hotels and homes and abortion clinics, the God of heaven and earth sees and knows that these gods are being worshipped. God sees and He knows that the root problem is a heart problem. The root problem is a problem of devotion. Solomon was trying to divide up his devotion between his wives and their gods and the one true God. The God who had set him on the throne of Israel. All true religion is a matter of the heart. The love of the heart comes out in life. And this is why Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 22, For from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's all in the heart, coming out of the heart. And given what we learn here about Solomon and his devotion, we need to hear a word of application, all of us. The young need to hear a word of application. And the old need to hear a word of application. A word for us all. Idolatry is alive and well. Idolatry is not something that's outside of us, but inside of us. It is what is in the heart that goes after idols and worships and bows down before them. We, we tend to think of the problem of idolatry as outside of us. But think about it, friends. A man murders because there's hate in the heart. 
A man commits sexual immorality because there's lust in the heart. A man or woman, these things are, are true for both sexes. A man is greedy because he covets in his heart. A man's sinful anger comes out because he's selfish within. What are you willing to commit sin for in order to get? Well, that's an idol. And your love for it is coming from your heart. We dare not think that we are better than Solomon. A word to the young. And and really, this is a word to all of those who are eligible to date and marry. Be mindful of who you date and marry. Under God's word, a believer in Jesus Christ should marry only another believer. An unbeliever can turn your heart away from the Lord Jesus Christ. I've seen it before. I have seen it time and time again. Sadly, I've seen this temptation prove to be strong in the fairer sex. Brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of your soul and well-being, only marry in the Lord. Young people and singles, when you contemplate marrying someone, be certain that they love Jesus so much that they are willing to tell you that you are in sin and that you need to repent. Be certain that you marry someone who openly and freely confesses that they are a sinner and in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. If you've dated someone for a longish amount of time and they haven't sought you for, 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 for forgiveness because they've sinned against you, because that's what happens when sinners relate to one another, then consider whether the fruit of repentance and faith is evident in their lives. Young people, Sisters in Christ, when you contemplate marrying a man, be certain that he is leaning into and pursuing the characteristics and qualities of an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And don't feed him the idea like an attorney leads a witness so that he suddenly becomes eligible for you to marry. Don't say, so, so you want to have those character qualities, right? You, you don't need to hear him say that. You need to see him live it in his life without prompting from you, because his devotion is totally toward Jesus. While he will not have those character qualities in full flower, he should have them in seed form. You especially want to see the gentleness of Jesus in him. Gentleness with the young, attentive to the cares of the old, ears that listen to the vulnerable and seek to meet their needs. You want to see a man living outwardly, serving others in love. You want to find a man who's turned outward, attuned to the emotions of fellow believers and seeking to care for the well-being of others. Young people, uh, brothers in Christ, when you contemplate marrying a woman, be certain that she is leaning into and pursuing the character qualities of the woman of Proverbs 31. Find a woman who is endeavoring to live with a gentle and quiet spirit of 1 Peter 3. While she may not have those character qualities in full flower, she should have them in seed form. Seek out a woman who is not merely open to, but is positively desirous of fulfilling God's commission of being fruitful and multiplying. You want to seek a woman out who wants to build a family so that she may nourish and nurture children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You want to seek out a woman who is peaceable, wise, and careful with her words, and above all, a lover of God's word. You want to seek out a woman who can do without you, but she can't do without Jesus. 
You want a woman who sees Jesus as the number one man in her life. Her obedience to him will tell you something about whether or not she'll obey you if you live up to your calling to love, serve, and lead like he does. Now a word to the old. This text has a word for you, dear friends. And if you want to know whether or not you fit or fall into this category, uh, then just put yourself into this category if you've ever started or ended the day with aches and pains. Uh, listen to what 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3 says. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Now, dear elderly saints, put your eyes on verse 4 of chapter 11. Do you see verse 4 of chapter 11? For when Solomon was old. When Solomon was what? When he was old. His wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Dear brothers and sisters, you are feeling the aches and pains of your age. You are feeling closer to your death than you are to your birth. You are feeling as though you're on the back nine or over the hill. But brothers and sisters, there is still a danger lurking. Be warned by old Solomon. Cling to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Don't let the faith of your youth be the brightest day of your faith. Let today be a brighter day. Your faith should be stronger, wiser, and more zealous on your last day than it was on your first. If you are slowing, pray that the Lord will be causing your faith to be growing. Read your Bible more. Pray more. Meet with your brothers and sisters more. Disciple more. Evangelize more. Prove God's word true when it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. As you approach the day of your death, show the world that you are more alive than ever because of Jesus Christ. As we see Solomon's devotion divided between the worship of Yahweh and the worship of false gods, and we think about how too often our own hearts have been divided between God and the idols of our hearts. Let us not forget Jesus. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged that Jesus was wholly, totally, completely devoted to God. For us and for our salvation, Jesus remained wholly true. Remember when our Savior stood in the wilderness and was tempted by Satan. This is what we read in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, and these, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And do you remember how our Savior responded? Do you remember what he said to this temptation to worship false gods? This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Brothers and sisters, give thanks and praise that where Solomon failed, where you and I have failed, Jesus remained wholly devoted to God. The Lord Jesus did not fail. It is to our eternal salvation and joy that Jesus is the holy, true King of the people of God. Sadly, 
Solomon was a king who was not wholly devoted to God. He was not wholly true. And this arouses the holy displeasure of the holy God. This is what we turn to consider next in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 9 to 13, under the heading, Displeasure. 1 Kings, read 1 Kings uh, chapter 11, verses 9 to 13, and notice, notice the Lord's attitude towards Solomon as we read these verses. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son. For the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Verse 9 says something quite uncomfortable to our, our modern ears. It doesn't say that the Lord was angry with the sin Solomon committed. No, verse 9 says the Lord was angry with Solomon. You see that? You see, sin is a personal offense against God. It is a personal turning away from the God who made you, gave you life and breath. It and is this very moment sustaining your life. When the author of Kings mentions that the God of Israel had appeared to Solomon twice, he, he means to show us how gracious God was to Solomon and how ungrateful, egregious, and gross Solomon's sin was. If God has been so gracious to appear to Solomon and make himself known to him, why on earth would Solomon sin against God with such a high hand? As readers, we're meant to be outraged by what Solomon has done. But friends, what about our own sin? Has not God appeared to the world in the flesh? Has not God appeared to the world in the person of Jesus Christ? Has He not been gracious to make Himself known in the saving power of Jesus Christ? And how have we responded? We too have sinned with a high hand. Do you grasp the utter sinfulness of sin? Do you shudder at the fact that you have sinned with a higher hand than Solomon? In his book, The Sinfulness of Sin, Ralph Vinning says this about sin. And I'm going to read it because I can't say it better than he has. Ralph Vinning writes, That which sin is accused of and proved guilty of is high treason against God. It attempts nothing less than the dethroning and ungodding of God himself. It has unmanned man, made him a fool, a beast, a devil, and subjected him to the wrath of God, and made him liable to eternal damnation. It has made men deny that God is, or affirm that He is like themselves. It has put the Lord of life to death, and has shamefully crucified the Lord of glory. Sin is always resisting the Holy Spirit. It is continually practicing the defiling, the deceiving, and the destruction of men. What a prodigious, monstrous, devilish thing sin is. It is impossible to speak worse of sin than it really is, or even as badly of it as it really deserves, for it is hyperbolically sinful. There are not enough words. We need more and stronger ones to speak of its vileness. And if we were to say that it is worse than death and the devil, the very hell of hell, this would not be to rail at it 
but only to tell the truth about sin. Sin is the quintessence of evil. It has made all the evils that there are and is itself worse than all the evils it has made. It is so evil that it's impossible to make it good or be lovely by all the arts that can be used. Sin is sin and can be nothing else. Its nature cannot be changed, not even by pardon. It is not only ugly, but ugliness. Not only filthy, but filthiness. It is not only abominable, but abomination. Friends, this is what sin is. And this is what we have done to the holy God. We have sought to dethrone an ungod God. If we do not grieve over our sin, we may not understand its gross and grotesque character. And if you think that the prayers of confession offered in our services are an utter waste of time, please go back and reconsider the nature of sin. If we do not grieve over our sin, we may not understand the generosity and grace of God toward us in Jesus Christ. I mean, we, we can't really be surprised by what we find in these verses, can we? Are we really surprised by God's displeasure with sin and the sinners who commit it? God hates sin, and He is righteous in that hatred. The question is, do we hate sin? Do we hate our sin? Do we take God's side against sin? Are we really surprised that God effectively says, there will be consequences for your sin, Solomon? I mean, in verses 11 to 13, the Lord promises Solomon that in the future, he is going to tear the kingdom from him. He would do it today. But he will postpone it for the sake of David or for the sake of Jerusalem. It's kind of hard to, to wrap our, our minds around what's, what's being said here. But, but we can understand what is happening in light of the Davidic covenant made in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God doesn't remove Solomon from the throne. He doesn't bring David's line to an end because he promised in David in 2 Samuel 7 that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever and ever. Moreover, we should see the, the grace of God in this coming future judgment. God will not tear the whole kingdom from Solomon's line. There's mercy in this judgment. It's restrained judgment while it is still yet a sober judgment. Because of Solomon's sin, the consequences of Solomon's sin will fall upon a future generation. Now, we, we may be inclined to think that's, that's not fair. But friends, this is God's world. And we must ever remember that God is he's working out His plan of salvation. And we must trust Him. That God does not tear the whole kingdom from Solomon and, give his, and his sons gives us hope that God will yet fulfill His promises to send His Messiah through the line of David. We also know, frankly, in our own kind of personal experience in this world, how the consequences of one man's sin can, by and large, pass by him and fall upon those after him. Right? We've seen this in our lives. Sadly, some of us can, can attest to the fact that we've seen that it's possible for the unrighteous anger of a father to wreak havoc in the lives of his children and grandchildren after him. His anger might have gone unchecked in his lifetime, but it won't when he stands before God's throne. Still, his anger may have shaped a future generation to carry on his legacy of unrighteous anger. If you don't think that your sin 
can affect others or have consequences in the lives of others, friends, think again. Fathers, brothers, let us be careful with how we lead and guide our homes. Let us put off anger and put on gentleness. Mothers, sisters, be mindful of whatever proclivities and temptations you struggle with. They may be passed down to the next generation too. We all have to be sensitive to our struggles with sin. As Thomas Brooks has said, Satan loves to sail with the wind and to suit men's temptations to their conditions and inclinations. So let's wage war against him and put on love. This pleases God. Solomon and his sin aroused the displeasure of God. And we in our sin arouse the displeasure of God. When we are grieved, convicted of our sin, where do we find hope? We find it in Jesus. We remember that Jesus is the one with whom God the Father is well pleased. He is our King who, unlike Solomon, did not bring judgment down upon God's people, but spared us from God's judgment. Because Jesus was sinless, we will receive no curse, but only blessing. Only blessing. We've discovered a divided heart in Solomon and the displeasure of God. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 14 to 28, we see the Lord discipline Solomon. He postpones the judgment of dividing the kingdom, yes, but he still raises up adversaries to discipline Solomon in his sin. This is the third point that we need to consider together, discipline. Now, before we read some of verses 14 to 28, we need to bear in mind that we are about to read, that what we're about to read here is a direct consequence of God's promise in 2 Samuel 7. This discipline is simply following the pattern that, that Yahweh laid out and outlined in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. So, so if you're thinking to yourself, wait, come on, why can't we just think about 1 Kings 11? Well, the answer is because the scriptures are, are telling a progressive, unified history of salvation. And in order to understand what's occurring in our text, we have to understand what has taken place in the text before us. So 2 Samuel 7 plays a powerful role in our text. So keeping, keeping one finger here, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7, especially verses 12 to 15. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think you can find that on page 259. In, in the Davidic covenant, enumerated here in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord, Yahweh, told David that he would make him into a house, a dynasty. And that his son would build him a house. And that's what Solomon did. The Lord also told David that he would have a son who would rule from his throne forever and ever. Until that forever son and king comes, Yahweh will discipline the sons of David who stray from being wholly devoted to the Lord. In particular, he says this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to 15. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, which is what Solomon has done with his worship of false gods, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. The stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
Now, turning back to 1 Kings chapter 11. Go ahead and and turn back there. In case you lost your place, that's on page 292 of the Bible's provided. Turning back to 1 Kings chapter 11, this is what we need to understand as we see the Lord discipline Solomon by the rod of men while not removing his steadfast love from Solomon. Solomon has committed iniquity and the Lord is doing precisely what he said he would do. Here comes the discipline of the Lord by the rod of men. 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 14. Just that one verse. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom. Now skip down to verse 23. Here's 1 Kings 11 verses 23 to 25. God also raised up an adversary to him, Rezin, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadad Ezra, king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became a leader of a marauding band after the killing by David. And they went into Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. And then there in verse 26, you see, we find the third adversary of Solomon. Read verse 26. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeredah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. Now these three men, they all had their own personal reasons to oppose Solomon, but do not mistake the Lord's hand in it all. The Lord is raising up men to, in the words of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, discipline Solomon by the rod of men for committing iniquity. Now there are a ton of other details in verses 14 to 28, but this is the central point. God disciplines the son whom he loves. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, Solomon wrote this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Solomon may well have understood that he was undergoing sovereign chastisement at the hand of these three adversaries. He was being reproved and disciplined for his iniquity. In these verses, it is beyond clear that God will brook no rivals. He will punish and discipline those who go after other gods. Why? Because of love. The Lord loves Solomon so much that he wishes to wean Solomon off of his false gods and idols and turn him back to the one true God and his one true love. All of these false gods and idols that Solomon served, they had their their temples and their their idols that he worshipped. And in his grace and mercy, God was disciplining Solomon, seeking to turn him away from idols and turn him back to his first love. Isn't this true of the Lord's dealings with us? Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever felt disciplined by the Lord? Have you ever felt a painful and powerful beckoning of God to make you give up idols so that you return to your first love? Many years ago, I had a friend speak to me some of the soberest words I think I've ever heard. Um, And they continue to ring into my ears this day. A friend, he, he confronted me graciously and lovingly with an idol in my life. And he said to me, Mike, you need to know something about idols. God tends to crush them. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you have idols in your life, in love, God will crush them. And when that happens, we're likely to get hurt because we're holding on to them. Right? 
the closer they are, the more painful they tend to be to lose and to let go of because more of us gets hurt. Instead of a finger, it's an arm. This is painful, and yet there's purpose in this pain. There is even love in the pain. See, the writer of the book of Hebrews picks up on Solomon's precious proverb, and he works out what it means for believers in Jesus Christ. There he tells us in Hebrews, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So Christian, if you are undergoing discipline, know that you are loved and being received by God. And the writer of Hebrews also tells us that the Lord uses discipline to direct us into the path of righteousness, into the path of repentance, and into the path of life. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Too often, we view the Lord's discipline as unloving, when the truth is the Lord Himself has told us that His discipline is loving. His discipline is loving and it's life-giving for those who have been trained by it. To be clear, discipline for sin is different than judgment for sin. The goal of discipline for sin is to produce righteousness. And the goal of judgment for sin is to punish unrighteousness. Solomon's undergoing discipline. And if we take Ecclesiastes as a kind of final statement concerning Solomon's relationship with Yahweh, then perhaps God's discipline has trained him in the way of righteousness. For Ecclesiastes, it ends with these words, Solomon's words, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We've considered Solomon's partial devotion, God's displeasure and discipline. And now we turn briefly to consider the promise of division. This is what we find in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 29 to 43. Read verses 29 to 33 just for now. And at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shelionite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had uh, dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give, it, give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. These verses, they're, they're fairly straightforward. They're eerily similar to 1 Samuel 15, where the prophet Nathan told, uh, promised Saul that the kingdom will be torn from him. And the reason the kingdom will be torn from Solomon is quite plain. Solomon and the people of Israel have forsaken Yahweh and they've worshipped other gods. After Solomon's death, the kingdom will be divided into two. Right? The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. This word from the prophet is, is prospective. 
With divine insight, he sees the future and tells Jeroboam that his future includes a kingdom. A kingdom where he's king over ten tribes. And just when, as when Solomon was made king, so Jeroboam was told that he too, you see there, he too will need to listen to all that Yahweh commands, verse 38. Jeroboam will need to walk in Yahweh's ways and do what is right in Yahweh's eyes by keeping his statutes and commandments as David did. And if he does, then Yahweh will be with him and will build him a sure house. Truth be told, though this is an act of division and a consequence of Solomon's sin, there's mercy, hope, generosity, and grace in these verses. Though God will tear the kingdom from Solomon after his death, Yahweh will leave a lamp in Jerusalem. Yes, the northern kingdom of Israel will form ten tribes, but Israel's hope will be found in a future son of David. God will not abandon his promises to raise up an offspring from the line of David. The people of God will be divided. And they will go through exile. But that will not be their end. Look at verse 39. Verse 39. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this. But not forever. Here's how one commentator put it. Though Solomon turns from Yahweh and departs from him. Though Solomon and his kingdom are both torn in two by his double loyalties. Yet Yahweh promises to restore David's house. Ultimately through another son of David torn in two in his sacrifice on the cross, that he might join all Israel into one new person. Indeed, in due time, that son of David will reunite all of the divided people of God into himself. And friend, if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to invite you to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. He is the great king that Solomon never was. He was always and only personally, perfectly, and perpetually devoted to God. His heart was wholly true to God the Father. He was sinless, and as the sinless Son of God, He brought pleasure to His heavenly Father. Jesus wasn't merely disciplined for sin. No, He was judged for sin. He was punished for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. On the cross, He endured the eternal wrath of God. And three days after His death, God raised Him from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And now Jesus is uniting in Himself God's people who are scattered all across the globe. The lamp of God has become the light of the world. So friend, would you confess that your heart has not been wholly devoted? Would you confess that your sin has brought God's displeasure? Would you confess that your sin deserves eternal judgment? God's eternal judgment. And would you confess that you deserve to be divided off and cast out of God's presence? If you would make this your confession, then you can find hope in Jesus. For He is the King who is wholly devoted to God. He is the King who rescues His people from God's wrath. He is the King who brings God's beloved people into God's glorious kingdom. Come to Jesus Christ today by faith. Turn from your sin and trust that He lived and died and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sin. Trust in Him this day. As we conclude, we should reflect on the closing words of the chapter. Read verses 41 to 43. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? 
And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. These words are more than the conclusion of the Solomon narratives in the book of Kings. These words are the confirmation that the prophetic word of the Lord is sure. God promised that Solomon's son would reign on his throne. Indeed, he is, even though Jeroboam will soon reign on the throne of the northern kingdom. What we need to learn from these verses is that the word of the Lord is sure. We can trust the promises of God concerning the purposes of God. We know, we know that is sure because eventually the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to rule and reign in fulfillment of God's word. He is the king who was for us and for our salvation wholly devoted to God. Brought, perfect, God, brought God perfect pleasure. Spares us from being destroyed by God's wrath against our sin. And who reunites God's people to himself and to one another. Praise God that Jesus, one greater than Solomon, has come. Let your heart be wholly true to him. Seek to please the Heavenly Father through faith and obedience in Jesus. Welcome God's discipline in your heart and life, for He loves you and is making you more like Jesus. And remember that you have been transferred from the kingdoms of this world, from the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of the beloved Son. And you are a beloved son and daughter of the Most High God. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.